0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicke.
0: Today on the show, we are taking you deep into the heart of a Ecclesiastes, also known by its Hebrew name Kohelet, often spelled with a Q and no U afterwards, which is weird and cool, just like this book of Ecclesiastes. Dad, I was reflecting on the fact that in some ways this book represents to me the fact that I uh, was born into Christendom and took a long time to realize that Christendom was over because you raised me with the oldies, which it took me a long time to realize were entirely from the 60s and not at all from the 80s and 90s when I grew up. And of course, so I always heard in the background, the birds singing, turn, turn, turn to everything there is a season. And of course, a popular, slightly psychedelic rock and roll band would be singing from the Bible because that's the world we live in.
1: (laughs) Oh, Sarah, what a vain reflection. Vanity, vanity, (laughs) all is vanity.
0: Well, all of that dream of Christendom has gone up like vapor and a puff of breath. Right
1: like the morning dew evaporated by the scorching sun. (laughs) You know, this book of the Bible is really interesting because it is so such an outlier. I mean, there's a commentary I read by R.B.Y. Scott from the old Anchor Bible, uh, Volume 18 series, Volume 18. And he asked with considerable exasperation, what is this skeptical book doing within the book of faith?
0: But is it skeptical? I think what I came away with is that Ecclesiastes is the original Rorschach test, an inkblot test. You see in it what you see in it, which it's very hard to figure out what it itself is trying to say. And um, as we will go along, I think we will uncover the fact that between the two of us, we have consulted more commentaries to figure out what to say about this than for any other book we have ever talked about on this show.
1: I think you're right about that, and it'll be fun to go through some various readings of Ecclesiastes, Uh, but interesting, the Rorschach uh, blot uh, comment that you just made, because basically as we'll conclude talking about Luther's commentary on Ecclesiastes, that's basically how he sees it. You can read the book in, in several different perspectives, and depending upon the perspective in which you read it, it has a different sense, and we'll get to that eventually, but let's begin, you know, with the maybe the predominant twentieth-century readings in Robert Jensen's systematic theology and in Walter Brueggemann's magisterial theology of the Old Testament. I think these two sources um, give us a, a flavor for how Ecclesiastes has been read in the century of Hitler, Hiroshima, and Stalin.
0: All right. Well, I'll take it away.
1: Yeah. In his systematic theology, Jensen treats the book of Ecclesiastes, and he sees in it Israel confronting the possibility of nihilism. Nihilism, Nihilism—that's from the Latin nihil, meaning nothing. So nihilism is nothingism. Uh, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Nothing matters. Nothing makes sense. Um, And so Jensen says, Plato, Socrates. Uh, believes that the human person is somehow devised for eternity, or, on the other hand, if purely a temporal being, is one singularly ill-begotten for the situation, a bad ontological joke. I'm quoting Jensen. I think, Sarah, this would remind us of Marilyn McCord Adams and her book, uh, Christ and Horace, where she talks about... um, the soul body mating uh, that is the human being as a, quote, metaphysical mismatch. (laughs) You know, so that's a genuinely platonic kind of theme. You know, here with my mind, I can soar up to the galaxies, but I'm stuck in this body that's subject to impersonal, natural forces that can crush me in the the next instant. You know, I can fall down and hurt myself or something bad can happen to me, even though I have all these precious thoughts and dreams and hopes in my head, right? Something like that.
0: (laughs) Yes, very pertinent at the moment, isn't it?
1: Yes, right. Uh, So Jensen writes, it was perhaps the glimpse of such negative possibilities of nihilism that more than anything drew the gospel and Greek reflection together. For also Israel had looked into the abyss of anthropological nihilism. He writes, quoting Ecclesiastes 3.21, Who knows whether the human spirit goes upward and the spirit of animals goes downward? And he comments, in Israel such questioning arose from contemplating the possible negative answer to Ezekiel's famous question, can these bones live? If human life is otherwise, as Israel understood it, but no resurrection is foreseen, then eventually, Jensen claims, it must be acknowledged that all is vanity, since the dead have no more reward, and even the memory of them is lost, as Ecclesiastes says, and this same fate comes to all the righteous and the wicked. So, Jensen's reading, the entire book, is devoted to probing this nihilistic possibility. And he says Ecclesiastes does it with a depth and relish that makes modern and postmodern efforts seem pusillanimous The final advice <laughs> is to enjoy yourself while you live and not fret yourself with aspirations. Better a live dog than a dead lion.
0: <laughs> Why don't you go into Brugemann before uh, I, I comment on that? Because I think he and he and Brugemann are pretty closely aligned in their readings of the
1: book. Of course, Jensen, of course, says the issue is whether there is a difference between humans and other animals that has a serious status, ontological status. So, um, And then he goes off into the whole business about animal rights, and that takes us kind of far afield. But the same kind of reading is probably to be found in Walter Bergerman he classifies Ecclesiastes in the category of Israel's counter-testimony against its dominant covenant theology. It may be observed that the divine name, uh, uh, the Tetragrammaton, makes no appearance here, and it is replaced by the impersonal Elohim. That's that strange plural noun, which should literally be translated the gods, but in Israel Scriptures, it always takes a singular verb, so it might be. I think I'm suggesting it might be better translated as the, impersonally as the divine, rather than as God, since in the English language the word God connotes a person has a personal connotation. Ecclesiastes only uses Elohim, the divine. And Bergman says, anyway as counter testimony, Ecclesiastes is at the far edge of negativity. He he suggests that the book's creator presides over all creation with power of unchallenged kind, reminiscent of the one who speaks from the whirlwind in Job 38 to 41. He says Ecclesiastes gives us a creation theology at its most formal and most formidable. God is in heaven and you creature are upon the earth. So Bergman points out that the author of Ecclesiastes certainly does have a kind of belief in the divine, that God uh, outlasts all creatures, God governs and judges, right? Uh, and and um, uh, Bergman does not see any moral passion in Ecclesiastes moralism, but simply a common sense assessment of how to ma- manage a reckoning and an accountability that cannot be escaped. And finally, he says that the sovereign God, the sovereign divinity, uh, uh, gives all that there is. There is nothing except what God gives. And that's why he can draw the kind of curious conclusion, there is nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their trial. This I saw also is from the hand of God for apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? Nonetheless, in spite of these theistic or even deistic affirmations, what God gives for Ecclesiastes is perplexing, less than satisfying, unhappy business, because the gifts are mixed together with what is vanity, a grievous ill. Ecclesiastes' stereotypical affirmations about God nevertheless make the whole of life mystifying and enigmatic. It is at most a bewilderment, a tribulation, and a vanity. The good that God does by governing, judging, and giving is situated in a context of massive frustration. Again, Marilyn McCord's metaphysical mismatch, for none of it is co- coherent, re- reliable, s- sense-making. All It all amounts to the inscrutability of God. And I think Bergman makes a very good point here. The problem is not simply the enigmatic quality of human life at the behest of a distant God. More than that, God is completely indifferent to differentiations within the world. No evidence is given here that anything at at all on earth matters in the way in which God deals with the world. It is the contradiction between meaningful valued obedience and responsibility in the world and the profound awareness of moral indifference writ large, so that in fact nothing really matters. And my final comment then on Bergman's reading is that how similar this would be to the stance Cicero, the Roman Cicero, takes in his dialogue book with the theologies of the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the Skeptics. Cicero himself holds the skeptical position And his conclusion is that it is uncertain whether the divine cares for human affairs so that all we have to go upon is conscience with its call to duty. And centuries later, that was the religious stance taken up in Immanuel Kant's moral philosophy.
0: Wow, that's pretty dreary.
1: Adolf Eichmann was responding to the call of conscience to do his duty.
0: (laughs) Right, right. This too is vanity.
1: What would Adolf do?
0: (laughs) right. Don't do that. Whatever he d- would do, d- do the opposite. You know, so the, what you've just described there is is basically a- until we started preparing for this episode, because, you know, half of our Bible episodes on this podcast are actually more like Bible therapy for us coming to terms with books we've had uh, mixed feelings about. So, um, and I even, I think, it, since I've been at uh, Tokyo Lutheran Church a couple years ago, uh, Ecclesiastes came up in the lectionary and, um, it it must have been bad if I chose that over the other three lessons for the day. So we don't need to relitigate my feelings about the lectionary here. But anyway, I, I looked at um looked up um Ecclesiastes and Brigaman's big book and read, you know, what you um, shared with us there. And I was like, yeah, this sounds pretty much right. <laughs> um and um well now I, I don't think that. Um I it seems to me that the um almost inevitable existentialist nihilist readings of Ecclesiastes, um, swamped, um, the otherwise excellent interpreters of, of and Jensen. But I can see why, because again, un- until, until I read a different take on it, it just seems so evidently, so self-evidently that Ecclesiastes is a book of perplexity and despair and just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Um, but, uh, just, the, I think the first thing to say is that vanity or more literally vapor or mist, I like vapor because it starts with a V like vanity. It doesn't mean nothingness. It actually means impermanence. And I think there is a, an enormous, enormous difference uh, both metaphysical and emotional between recognizing the impermanence of things and uh, concluding the nihilism of all things. And I think if you bring nihilism to the table or impute it to, Ecclesiastes, you're going to get a very different result than if you think it's it's talking about impermanence of temporal things as compared to God. And I think that just points right there to the Rorschach quality of this book.
1: Very good comment. I, I agree with that, Sarah, because the Hebrew word is hebel. And uh, that, as you said, in Hebrew, that actually means vapor, right? Um, and it's interesting in the the translation of the Bible into Latin by Jerome, uh, he chose the Latin word vanitas, which comes into English as vanity. And while the Latin vanitas could include less negative meanings, such as, as you were saying, insubstantial, lacking in permanence, nevertheless, the meanings useless, futile, and illusory have come to dominate. Nevertheless, in Hebrew, the basic metaphor is vapor, the morning mist that dissipates in the heat of day. So you're right about that. Um, And um, you mentioned that you had read another commentary that gave you a different perspective. Would you like to talk about that?
0: Um yeah and I just want to add that it's it's not like um impermanence is a great foundation either <laughs> you know it's better than nothing but it's not not wonderful um one of the most um Probably the key insight of Japanese Buddhism, which is very culturally prevalent here, is the impermanence of all things. And, um, you know, the reason why cherry blossoms are so beloved is not just that they're beautiful, but that they're fleeting. And you have such a very short window to get out there and have your picnic under the cherry tree. But there's a sense in which um, the preferred cherry blossom is not at its peak of beauty, but when it's beginning to fall down and be swept away. And, you know, you're not going to see them again till next year. So, um impermanence can can have it's uh, it's pleasures and rewards. It is better than nothing, but it's still not um it, it I think we would say it's not enough to build on, but I don't think that's um yeah, so let, let's get at a different way of talking about ecclesiastes. So, I read um a commentary by Norbert Lohfink, a German scholar uh, translated into English, of course. And um, he's a, a a very clearly excellent scholar who spent a lot of time um, deeply in the text and in the language. And so he makes a few interesting observations. Uh, first, I should say, as as a fair disclosure, um, it seems that the, the language and the dating of Ecclesiastes is hugely disputed. The one thing we know is that it probably had to be finished and well circulated by about 200 before Christ, the year two hundred before Christ, because there's some Deuterocanonical literature that clearly depends on and quotes on it, but the uh, the the date for it otherwise can range pretty far back. So LoFink argues for it being very very late in um, in Hebrew life, um, and that it represents a period where. Um, the Greek Empire, uh, famously spread by Alexander the Great, has become extremely dominant, that Hellenistic culture is the culture of choice, that all cultured and wealthy people are drifting or uh, even dashing at high speed towards Greek language, Greek education, Greek mores, um, everything prestigious is Greek. And so we know very well that that also was the case um, in Palestine, um, that there was a large Jewish community living outside of Palestine, especially in Alexandria and Egypt, which was a very much a Greek city uh, at that time and for long afterwards. People may not remember that even the Romans were speaking Greek for a long time before their Latin finally won out. Um, <clears throat> and so um, what this book conjectures, um, looking at the, the Hebrew, is that it's, well, first of all, it's Hebrew, uh, which is um, the the religious language of the the Jews, the Israelites, but not their everyday language, which by then was already Aramaic. Um, and it's clearly Hebrew that has um, absorbed and dealt with a lot of Greek idioms, but it is not in Greek. And so what he conjectures is that this is somebody who is Um, actually devoutly committed to the people of Israel and the God of Israel, and thinks that Israel has something to say for the whole world in the universal way that much Greek literature does. And so he is specifically addressing the whole world, not Israel in its special covenant status. And that would be why... The name of the Lord, the special name of the Lord is not named, why the more generic term for God is invoked and why other than the, uh, the few allusions to the son of David or Solomon, uh, possibly the, the king um, of Jer- uh, over Jerusalem. It's really meant it's meant to be an experiment in universal perception, but written in the classic religious language inflected by both the idioms of everyday Aramaic life, as well as the prestige and philosophical contemplations of what Greek culture is bringing. And uh, Lofink goes so far as to say this is the most deeply in the entire canon of both testaments that... um, the uh, the the people of, of Israel, as uh, also extended into the church, are dealing deeply with Greek concepts and he's trying to ma- render them fruitful for the people of Israel, but also essentially saying to the people of Israel, you need not abandon the deposit you have received. But given changed conditions, you do need to update it and and deal seriously with other ways of thinking that have come into our world.
1: I really think that's very helpful. I'm glad glad that you read that commentary, and I'm glad to hear about Lofink's interpretation of the im laban of the book uh, in a way that kind of confirms at least the observation of Robert Jensen that here Israel is dealing with the legacy of Greece and trying to deal with it very seriously, right?
0: Right. But I think it's hugely different. At, like you said, the Zitzim Leben, if you think of it, try to put it actually in a real historical place and a real historical community, trying to figure out how to move from the tight knit family and tribe-centered agricultural life um, that most of the scripture concerns itself with to sudden rise of a whole lot more um, urban experience, a lot more international, interlinguistic experience, um, significant challenges, not just from other tribal gods, but from seriously thought out philosophical systems. And so if you put it in that light, for me, like the whole book just kind of like came alive for me in a new way because it was no longer this sort of generic nihilistic, Oh, what's the use of anything, (laughs) but, (laughs) but actually a, a serious, a serious book. Um, Oh, and, and, and this also is a thing, um, related to it, which is that, um, Luther and others, uh, Made the conjecture, which I think is profoundly helpful, that different books of the Bible are actually primarily directed at different audiences. And so, for example, Proverbs is for young people. Luther says this too. Proverbs is just acquiring like the basic rules of, you know, fairness and understanding what's going on in the world and behaving yourself and listening to your elders and restraining your worst impulses, you know, so forth. And that's very important for training young people. It will only get you so far. And then by contrast, something like Ecclesiastes is addressed to older people who have seen how these basic rules often fail. How do you think about that? How do you conduct yourself in a world where you are not confronted only with family members or only other people who um, have goodwill toward you and um, who will just face immediate social consequences if they don't? How do you adapt to an urban world, an impersonal world, an international world? That is... um, that is more what Ecclesiastes is after. And that made a lot of sense to me also because when I have preached or taught on the book of Revelation, I've learned that it's extremely important whether Revelation is read in a situation of actual, real, bloody persecution or in the comfort of a living room. And um, <laughs> the the latter produces very different results, um, speculative, numerological, and a lot of trouble. Whereas Revelation for people who literally are at death's door... Um, is going to render, I mean, I don't know personally, but obviously it's going to render a very different result. And so I think looking at Ecclesiastes specifically as what what audience in its own time, but also what audience now it's most fruitfully directed towards is really helpful.
1: That's really great, Sarah, because, you know, you'll recall several uh, podcasts we did at the end of last year about the shock of the scientific revolution and the discovery that the world is a whole lot bigger than we've ever imagined right mm, and, yeah, and yeah. how how do you how do you proceed out of the kind of parochialism of the of the biblical world in which we're inculcated uh in the community of the church and suddenly um, look out and see this vast universe that the astrophysicists have discovered and so forth and how can we relocate ourselves in this much bigger world and we have a similar kind of a parallel kind of challenge to what, uh, according to Lofink, the author of Ecclesiastes had in coming out of the uh, the covenant history of Israel with the Lord, um, which by the way, had put the majority of living Jews in diaspora. They're, they're no longer living in the promised land, they're living in exile. And so how how do you deal with this legacy? which is now uh, in a situation of exile and facing uh, a vastly bigger uh, a cultural world than had ever been imagined. I think that's spot on. That's a very good analysis. But you mentioned in passing the canonical placement of Ecclesiastes after um, Proverbs and in front of the Song of Songs. And the Brazos uh, Theological Commentary on the Bible series, author of the Commentary on Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a man named Daniel Trier. And he thinks this canonical placement is kind of important. He refers to, um, to um, uh, Origen's uh, discussion of these books, the Church Father Origen of Alexandria, who saw a progression. He said, the wisdom of Proverbs sets a person on the path of fearing the Lord. As you said, instruction for young, young people. What is the motive of, of, of prudence and, and wisdom in respect to behavior of young people as you're growing up? Learn the fear of the Lord. Um, but Ecclesiastes, according to origin, is for adults. Uh, as you said, when they learn that simple moral rules or simple wisdom does not always prevail in this world. And for origin, Ecclesiastes purges us of naive and wrongful earthly attachments um, to things that are by nature impermanent. Imper- and it advances us into the holy fear of the one who is not impermanent, uh, the one true God, the Lord. And I think that's a very fruitful way into getting at the theological meaning of the book of Ecclesiastes.
0: Yeah, I think there's an, an uh, this sort of impulse maybe it's a, a distinctively American that if you're not naive then you must be cynical and that those are the only two options. But I think we should judge both of those to be vices especially in adults. Uh, young people can't help being naive, but adults have no excuse. But the temptation then is to immediately flip from your naivete into cynicism and I think that's how Ecclesiastes is usually read. But if it's read mm-hmm. instead as as a sober acknowledgement of the this is the world. This is God's good creation. And lots of stuff goes wrong in it. And it doesn't always add up why and it doesn't often seem fair, but you have to live in it. So now what? How do you actually navigate your way through this world when you can't be naive anymore, but you need to avoid the temptation to be cynical or worse, corrupt? And if I read it in that light, I feel like Ecclesiastes is the book I've been waiting to pick up for quite a while now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're at that stage of life, right?
0: <laughs> totally, I totally am.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, I would think that uh, the, though the 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 admonition to uh, be purged of wrongful attachments uh, to uh, the things of this world is an important theme, it's the root of all genuine Christian asceticism. I'd like to talk about that a little bit because I th- I think that uh, uh, uh Karl Barth and Martin Luther will have important things to say about that, but in the interim, Daniel Trier has some, I, I think, a very crucial in, uh, insight here, again, in canonical terms, because he points out that this dominant metaphor of vapor, hebel, the morning mist that dissipi- dissipates in the heat of day, um, uh raises a basic question uh, about Ecclesiastes. How are we to reconcile the reading of the book as contempt for this world? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Beginning at the very top with the divine indifference to it, according to Bergman, and not so much Jensen, but Bergman certainly seems to think so in reading the book. How are we to reconcile this contempt for the world and indifference to it with the book's call to earthly joys over which the creator presides? How do you put those two together? That's a very interesting question, it seems to me. And Trier argues that the two themes are complementary, and he can make that argument on the basis of the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. He points out that the word for futility in Romans 8 stems from the same family, verbal family as the vanity of Romans 8, highlighting misuse of God's good creation as the root cause of cultural malaise. Ecclesiastes, he says, does not deny but in fact underscores the goodness of God's earthly gifts. The book simultaneously situates that goodness within a more comprehensive framework of remembering the Creator. If people fasten on the gifts of themselves for the sake of personal advantage, in hopes of permanently holding on to their claims, then in such an idolatrous state, God-given disappointment is bound to result. The central message of the book has to do with fearing and obeying God from youth on. on. Hebel is the motif that spells out the setting within which people are called to fear God, clarifying the genuine and false incentives for doing so, remembering that all is Hebel, does not reject earthly goodness, but interprets it. In other words, right, the temporal gifts of God really are temporal. <laughs> and you, mm. if you separate the gifts from the giver, you're going to experience disillusionment and disappointment. Sic transit, Gloria Mundi, right? So pe- <laughs> the glory of this world passes away.
0: No. Whenever I hear that proverb, I always think of the scene in uh, Mel Brooks's movie, History of the World, Part 1, where these very uh, corrupt Roman senators are exiting their uh, meeting place and one says to the other, in pecunium sic transit gloria. And the other one responds, I didn't know gloria was sick. <laughs> a dumb joke of, uh, of great um, Mel Brooksian um, qualities. Right, right. <laughs>
1: okay. right. And you have to know a little Latin to get that, right? Don't
0: Mm, Yes, yes.
1: But, you know, I think, in other words, as a Christian reading of the book of Ecclesiastes, we, of course, I think, should resort to the Apostle Paul. And at at the end of his chapter on death and resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, he draws the stunning conclusion, right? Uh, This mortal must put on immortality, right? That's the... So he, he... You can't have a resurrection without first death. You can't have eternity without first transitoriness. That's kind of the argument of 1 Corinthians 15. And having laid that argument out, he concludes, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not vanity, right? What a powerful affirmation that is in the face of the transitoriness of all things earthly. And so, in this light of Paul's resurrection hope, and again, resurrection is not possible without first a death, and eternity is not possible without first transitoriness in that light, the light of grace, the light of the promise of the resurrection, the insight into the transitoriness of all things under the sun is hardly unique to Ecclesiastes. Second Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Jesus says that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. The Sermon on the Mount cautions us to store up treasure in heaven where neither moth consumes nor thief breaks into steel. Where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. So, in that slight, the unmitigated harshness of Ecclesiastes' rhetoric drives home the broadly biblical point that the gifts of creation are temporary, that human life and its goods are mortal, that there is no earthly overcoming of the endemic vulnerability of being a creature, so that wisdom recognizes the difference between the creator who is in heaven and we who are on the earth.
0: Well, I mean, I I, I don't have any problem reading Ecclesiastes canonically and, and bringing the apostle Paul to help us through it. But it's pretty clear for Ecclesiastes, there is no resurrection and there is no um writing, um, or reestablishing, um, bodily wrongs or bodily goods in the life to come. Cause there isn't, there's just, there's just Sheol. And, um, you know, if anything, Ecclesiastes, the Kohelet, the assembler seems to be saying, um, D- don't, don't be so full of yourself. O oh human that your spirit goes up while the animal spirits go down for all, you know, your spirit goes down too. So don't be so <laughs> full of yourself. But I do think the point is, uh, the, the, the actually good and, and helpful and even life-affirming point here is that it's always easier to take an extreme either or position. So you can either pursue all worldly goods and pleasures to the maximum possible because this is it, right? And actually the book sort of starts with with the, um you know, probably the persona of Kohelet as maybe... King Solomon, you know, is gathering up every pleasure available to him, from you know bathing himself in wine to an entire harem to satisfy him, and slaves and delicious things to eat and and every good. Um, it, it seems that he's like trying this out as a as a thought experiment, if not an actual experiment, and discovering well that doesn't actually bring happiness so like that's an important discovery to make that if everything is temporal and you're going to die and that's it why not get all you can while you can and Kohelet says well that doesn't work but then the other alternative is to say well if everything's temporal and impermanent then the goal should be utter detachment utter indifference to cast away all pleasures to spend all of your, your energies trying to detach yourself that's the ascetic um, impulse that's the kind of classic um, Buddhist ideal of total non-attachment to any worldly thing. And so I think, in a kind of a, a funny sort of way, Ecclesiastes is the vote for being bourgeois in the best sense of the term, which says that, um, the gifts, as you said, are intimately connected to the giver. So receive the gifts that are given while they're given, enjoy them for what they're worth, but don't hang on to them and don't make a God of them. And if they're taken away from you prematurely or unjustly, okay, that happens too. There's no reason to, um, you know, if if you've prepared yourself well, it will not create a crisis of faith or a devastating sense that you know the whole universe is is wretched and horrible. But you just recognize, well, it was temporal, so it came and went. And being able to kind of live in that balanced place that is neither extreme, I think, is is what Ecclesiastes would commend to us.
1: That's certainly wisdom, and it's also fear of the Lord, isn't it? For Ecclesiastes, it's it's respecting that God is in heaven. And we are on the earth that we are by nature mortal. Uh, And I think think
0: you really have to say that that this ability to relate to your worldly goods rightly is for Ecclesiastes intimately connected to fear of the Lord. You can't adopt it as a neutral, like ethical or philosophical position. The only way you can pull it off is by actually rightly acknowledging God and fearing God and recognizing God as the giver as well as the taker of the gifts. It's not something you can do in a a completely non-religious or secular kind of way.
1: And I think when Jensen says then, Sarah, that Israel faces the anthropological nihilism to the abyss, that statement here can be interpreted positively in the light of what we're just discussing now. Because uh, Ecclesiastes then would force us to see see clearly without the Socratic Platonic escape hatch of an immortal soul that sheds the body and flies back up to heaven. Uh, instead, as you're right, death is really death here in Ecclesiastes. Um, and um, it, nevertheless, life is affirmed in, in face of this horizon of, of the coming non-existence. Uh, and I think Karl Barth made an, a very important observation in this regard, um, that um, d- death is not... Uh, I'm quoting Karl Barth, Death is not in itself the judgment. It is not in itself and as such the sign of God's judgment. Dying is no less a part of life as the end which corresponds neutrally to its beginning than conception and birth. Death is man stepping from existence into non-existence as birth is his step from non-existence to existence. In itself, therefore, it is not unnatural but natural for human life to run its course to this terminus ad quem to ebb and fade and therefore to, to have this forward limit and bart then concludes the recognition of the goodness of created finitude gives just like as paul says at the end of first corinthians gives to human life an importance of as something which one which will one day be completed and not be continued indefinitely, and therefore to that which is required of it an urgency, which would obviously be lacking if we set our hopes on deliverance from the limitation of our time, and therefore on a beyond instead of on the eternal God himself. And that last kind of subtle reference, setting our hope on a beyond rather than on the eternal God himself. Is a reference to this idea that I'm going up to some heavenly realm when I die, when my soul is liberated from the, the body, um, and so this uh, mature uh, acceptance of the goodness of human finitude is is a lesson that Bart is drawing out of Israel's confrontation with the thought of um, hu- human, the fleetingness of all things creaturely and human.
0: Mm. You know, I think in that light, it's important to say is that we actually cannot conceptualize eternity or immortality or everlastingness because all it can be is you know whatever we know squared or cubed, right? And yep. um, and if you actually talk to people, you know, pastorally about. Heaven or eternity, they're really stressed out about it because it just seems like endless time. And like sooner or later, even if there are billions and billions of people, you're going to have talked to them all and heard all their stories. And then what? (laughs) It's going to be boring right? And so I think actually what what the, the good here is is saying that actually all we know are limits. We can, you know, uh, imagine or say the words about limitlessness, but we don't actually have any idea what that's like. And so um, actually coming to terms with acknowledging, accepting, even embracing the limits of our life for now is actually a positive, good thing. And in that respect, one thing that really struck me as I was working through Ecclesiastes is it for today is as a radical critique of prosperity theology because it is very clear from Ecclesiastes, God takes as well as gives. He might give a lot. He might be generous. Um, though, as a a quote I read recently said, um, you can tell how highly God values riches when you look at the kinds of people he gives them to, which I thought was uh, funny and mean, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) the, the point is taken. Um, but you know, God also takes away, and God imposes limits, and people get sick, and people die, and that that too is from God. It is not only vanity, but it is from God. That's what Ecclesiastes would like to say. And I, I think somehow, if um, if uh, religion or Christianity is conflated with vain dreams of limitlessness and ubermenschness and so forth, then Ecclesiastes as like a slap in the face, or you know, having a ice water splashed at you. Um, that that could be a good sobering up way to recenter your perception of whatever you know material or worldly benefits you have as intrinsically connected to the giver who is also the taker.
1: I think you're absolutely right. Most people think of heaven as the limitless extension of our uh, temporal lives, and um, as you rightly point out, for some people that creates a great deal ang- of anxiety as rightly it should, because if we live without limits endlessly, uh, does that does that not, imp- in, in continuity with what we have been, does that not imply that we shall live endlessly as the sinners that we are, in, in fact, still are? And we'll repeat all the tragic history of sinful humanity in eternity. That would be a nightmare. That would be hell, not heaven.
0: Right. Yeah. Or um, we we would be unrecognizable to ourselves because we don't know ourselves apart from our sins and limits. So how would it even be me in in everlastingness? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm But you actually have to trust in God to take care of this rather than conceptualize your way to some sort of apparently satisfying answer.
1: Well, I think I think Bart puts us on the right track. When he says our hope for heaven is centered on the eternal God himself, that that heaven is the 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 unlimited glorification of God. Um, and it's the, it's the endless doxology. For Jensen, it's the final great fugue or something like that. And when we think of heaven theocentrically, like you just just suggested, we're, we're delivered of a lot of these uh, conundrums when we think, try to think about heaven as the endless continuation of earthly life. But again, what, what difference does this make for real life right now? and what kind of what, what can we take away from Ecclesiastes uh, Complementing your critique of uh, um, unlimi- the lack of limits and the idea that we can just uh, uh, get whatever we want out of this world? Um, when we realize this, temporalness, this temporality, this transitoriness of all things creaturely and human. That helps because we increasingly realize today that the poor earth cannot bear the burden of the foolish and for insatiable desires of creatures for some beyond other than the eternal God, which twists us into envy and greed by the creeping transgression of all creaturely limits desire that instead properly belongs to the creator, to the glorification of God, whom we are to fear, love, and trust above all. And so as a result, the earth becomes subjected to vanity on account of exploitative desire. And that was Daniel Trier's profound insight that when he connected Ecclesiastes to Romans 8, that the futility of the creation uh, is its um, subjugation by unlimited, boundless human greed and envy uh, which of course then produces the, the, the uh, compounds the fleetingness of all things with the disasters of, of human war and oppression and interestingly Sarah the critique of envy is a chief motif in Martin Luther's commentary on this biblical book.
0: Now I know from because you just wrote an article about this for Word and World. We'll put a, a link to it. But um, I think going into it prima facie, one would not assume that Luther would like Ecclesiastes, <laughs> but it turns out that he really did, and he found a lot of value in it. So why don't you take us through that now? I was I was surprised by this what you found there.
1: Yeah, he find, Luther finds the um, the key text uh, as we mentioned earlier in chapter two. Uh, verse 24, there is nothing better for man than than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Luther seizes that verse and comments, this is the principal conclusion, in fact, the point of the whole book, a remarkable passage, one which explains everything preceding and following it. (laughs) So obviously Luther likes this. Now, why does Luther like that idea so much? that you can simply enjoy the temporary gifts of of temporal existence in in fear and gratitude to the creator. Why?
0: Well, I would guess it has something to do with being a former monk who spent a lot of time in anxiety and self-denial and then discovered that it was much easier to love and trust God if he was allowed to have uh, friends and music and beer and a wife and children and a community and singing. But that's just a guess.
1: That's exactly right. It Yields for Luther his teaching of holy secularity, the holiness of all things temporal, or at least the, sanct- the sanctification of all things temporal. Here's a quotation from his commentary Christians should be exhorted to live in the very midst of the crowd, to marry, to govern their household, etc. Moreover, when their efforts are hindered by the malice of men, they should bear it patiently and not cease their good works. Do not desert the battlefield, but stick it out. End quote. Such a includes pointedly for Luther, as you suggested, joyfully living in the present, drinking one's beer or changing the baby's diapers to glorify God and just so to spite the devil. <laughs>
0: Right. And again, you're not making these temporal goods and, an absolute thing, which, of course, is always a tempt- temptation for the, the bourgeois, especially when as they get farther away from the fear of God and more entangled in their material comforts. But again, the solution is not the total rejection of all these things, but to integrate gift and giver.
1: Yeah. And this, you know, this is very interesting hermeneutically because Luther, is thinking that if you do not have this Pauline perspective on the book of Ecclesiastes, if you don't know uh, how to read this book about natural life in the light of grace, you're going to get it all wrong. So let's, let's talk about how Luther ta- tackles the challenge of Ecclesiastes. Okay. As a good Augustinian in theological anthropology... Luther discerns Augustine's restless heart behind the curiosity of the speculative philosophers who would ascend to heaven above to scrutinize God only to conclude, like the Epicureans and Ciceronian skeptics and Brueggemann's Koholeth, that the gods do not care for us mere mortals. So speculative, philosophical, skeptical readings, you know, both presume to figure out the God who is in heaven, and in their presumption, conclude with this deistic theology of divine indifference. But for Luther, that's getting it all wrong. He takes for granted the authorship by King Solomon as a wise and experienced ruler. And he says that according to his lifetime experience and office, a humbled King Solomon, quote, is speaking simply about the human race and is clearly confining himself within the limits of human nature. So Solomon is talking about natural life, right? That's his topic. That's what he's talking about. What is under the sun? But Luther continues, Solomon can speak in this limited way about the the transitoriness of all things under the sun just because he knows that attention to mere life on the earth is also from the hand of God. And so then the realm of vanity for Luther is the realm of transitoriness, is the realm of nature seen only in the light of nature. And by contrast then with the speculative philosophers, Luther's affirmative but deflated view of earthbound human knowledge, on the other hand, is not a natural insight but a spiritual gift, the Holy Spirit's gift of true wisdom, which consists primarily in the fear of the Lord. And he certainly sees that in the author of Ecclesiastes. As mentioned, he thinks that's Solomon or Solomon's court In other words, Luther sees the state of nature described by Ecclesiastes in the light of grace, and he thinks that Solomon does so too. Consequently, it is not the philosophers who are by nature skeptics uh, concerning the things of God, but it is especially theologians for Luther who most wickedly abuse Ecclesiastes by retooling (laughs) the skepticism of the philosophers to teach that one must be in doubt and uncertainty about the grace and love of God. And this is, of course, a polemic of the Reformation times, that his opponents are saying that no one can be certain of God's love and grace, um, and that must, one must live in fear of damnation until one passes through the pearly gates.
0: So the problem is is that you, are, you actually are... Reasonably well justified in being a skeptic about everything if you only see nature and the light of nature. But you, once you have the light of grace, you are not allowed to bring the skepticism of nature into grace because grace is actually telling you something that nature does not actually tell you. And so for him, it's it's um, looking looking at at the the gift of the gospel or the gift of Christ with only the light of nature and and not even um, acknowledging the light of grace that shines on it.
1: That's right. That's right. The the light of grace does not shine purely in in this kind of reading that Luther is attacking that inculcates uncertainty about the love and grace of God. Um, So he affirms in the commentary, quote, Christ is our mediator and is the author of an absolutely certain grace and salvation, freely offered to us and conferred upon us by God. So when in the light of those basically Pauline hermeneutical principles. The danger is if the reader has not been grasped by the spirit of Christ and reads this text about natural life only philosophically in the light of nature rather than theologically in the, in the light of the grace of Christ, you're going to get a bad interpretation of it. That's Luther's hermeneutical position.
0: Well, and that's also a canonical position. So I think we just at least have to ask, you know, uh, not not canonically, but Kohelet in its own right, is that a legitimate or uh, a literarily accurate reading of it? What do you think?
1: Well, if think is correct in that, and that the author of Ecclesiastes is loyal to the covenant traditions of Israel and trying to interpret the life of Israel's faith in the new context of, of a Greco-Roman hegemony or, or uh, a, Greek, a Greek hegemony of thought and culture, um, I think at least there is an anticipation of a position like Paul's and derivatively of Luther's. And if Luther, by the way, also polemicizes against the know-nothing interpretation of the supposedly pious, uh, those who react against the agnostic reading of the book by the speculative philosopher. He says they're wrong if they suppose that the knowledge of nature, the study of astronomy or of all philosophy is being condemned in Ecclesiastes and to teach that such things are to be despised as vain and useless speculations. Luther continues, for the benefits of these arts are many and great, as is plain to see every day. In addition, there is not only utility, but great pleasure in them in investigating the nature of things. So Luther is not opposed to the frank realism of the author of Ecclesiastes and his description of natural human life. He thinks it's insightful, and given the limits of the discourse, the scope of the discourse, it, it is helpful. What matters for Luther is how we not what we read, but how we read it. Do we read it as a protest in the, of the light of nature against the light of grace? That's what he's objecting to. Do we read mm. it instead as an interpretation of natural light, life in the light of grace? That's what he affirms.
0: You know, I could very well be uh, reading my own (laughs) observations into it, but as I just kind of look at what's going on in our world, the, the one common thing I see is profound contempt for human beings, especially, but all of the world and its limitations. And even when I hear people talk about like a theology of abundance, it sounds, it sounds, um, utopian to me and angry at the lack of uh, uh, the lack of limitlessness to solve all problems and, and even a kind of pious know-nothing, if only we believe in hope and share enough, then there will be endless amounts of everything for everybody. But deeper than that is just a real hatred of people and what we are and not just our limitedness or our weakness, but our actual sin and our actual failures. And so many so many programs, whether they're religious or purely political, just I, I, I may maybe to use uh the, the Luther's language is because they are only looking at humanity in the light of nature the solution seems to be, well, let's change nature. And now with um, science and tech, we have the tools to improve upon this awful human nature and make it better. So there's not only uh, no light of grace, but the light of nature itself is is profoundly corrupted. And what I see in Ecclesiastes, again, perhaps a little bit isogenically, is someone who's saying, yep, this is how the world is. There's lots about it that kind of sucks and is very frustrating. And, you know, I too have looked and seen lawlessness in the law courts and injustice where there ought to be justice. And there's lots that goes wrong. And we have to deal with that as it is and not uh, as a uh, who I think is, is, um, is informed at least indirectly by by Luther's reading he uh, the way he puts it is this um it does not provo- uh, does not propose a revolutionary utopia rather it suggests some political, economical options, and otherwise tries only to show how individuals might take some reasonable steps. It is the book of a teacher and thinker, not of a prophet or a guerrilla warrior. And let's face it, I'm a teacher and a thinker. I am not a prophet or a guerrilla warrior, but there, there's something about this avid desire to remake nature because we hate human nature so much that I find, um, deeply troubling. And, uh, I wish even like nature got to say, have it say and say, this is how we are. So we have to deal with how we are, not how we uh, romantically ought to be. If even if the light of grace is impossible for a lot of people in power or want to be revolutionaries.
1: Well, those comments are really in the footsteps of Luther's commentary on Ecclesiastes, because chiefly throughout his commentary, Luther singles out, the more subtle but no less noxious doctrine of contempt for the world, where the world is taken as those things which have been created and established by God. For Luther, Christ is not a foe of nature in this sense, but nature is what Christ has come to redeem and fulfill, so far as it has been ruined by envy and greed, that is, by the devil." So he, Luther says in the commentary, it is foolish and wicked when many preachers inveigh against glory, power, social position, wealth, gold, fame, beauty, or women, thus openly condemning the creation of God. For God has made all things to be good and useful for some human purpose. So very much so that reading Ecclesiastes in the light of grace, as Luther does, then means that, as you were saying, finitude, The transitoriness of all things earthly is a created gift. It's a created good. God has time for us. God takes time and space, gives us time and space. That's primarily the gift of creation, that every human creature has time and space. You can't hoard that. You have to spend it. And when it's spent, it's exhausted and it's over. That's what Karl Barth was saying about the goodness of natural finitude. That there is more to the story, of course, refers us to the light of grace. But in the light of grace, that allows us to see that we should, we are to work on being content with our daily bread and work to make sure that others are fed daily with bread uh, so that we have an ethic and ethos of generosity, as Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, when you invite... Uh, to the banquet invite those who cannot repay you and so you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous.
0: Hmm. Yeah, Luther also, I mean, in that light, calls out the um, the uh, misogynistic passage or apparently misogynistic passage for it's also its natural contempt of women, which is certainly a worldwide phenomenon. And Lofink in his interpretation says, yes, uh, the uh, Kohelet is calling out this not as an endorsement, but as a quotation of the sort of thing one hears and therefore um, is, is to be rejected. This is not the right way to look at the gift of woman. Um, in one's life. But, you know, it, it, and, and then kind of stretching that out farther again to contemporary issues, it, it made me think back to our episode on Martin Luther King and my observation that like the uh, the the gospel punch in his preaching was not so much second article, which I think was was taken for granted easily by all of the, the black Christians he was addressing, but the first article declaration of being made in the image of God, of being fully human, of being beloved created creatures and um and I I, I think so much that there, there's so much talk about the doctrine of creation now but it it's this so often this romantic, isn't the great outdoors wonderful? And let's not let these cool animals go extinct. And, you know, I love the great outdoors too. And I don't want these wonderful, amazing animals to go extinct. But it seems to me so much for, more fundamentally like the cutting or the, not the cutting edge, but like the urgent need in first article Doctrine of Creation is something more like this is against the profound contempt for human beings. And, um, as well as the world they're in. And so much of the great outdoors creation theology is actually masking, and to me it seems, a profound contempt for the human. And what Ecclesiastes would say is, you, you know, they're all the gifts of the creator. You have to take them as you find them and deal within this reality, not in your own uh, fictional remaking of nature to um, what you judge would have been better than our creator saddled us with.
1: Yeah, Just like Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That, That's the kind of wisdom for living a, life, a natural life in the natural world that is being commended here, isn't it? Um, and apart from that contentment with one's daily bread, and therefore the non-envious but rather generous uh, ethic that follows from that of sharing one's daily bread so that others are fed, uh, renouncing greed in the foolish attempt that you can be exploitative enough, in order to secure yourself against the transitoriness of all things. That's the that's the ethical heart of this, and you can see how deeply that is connected to Israel's covenant traditions in the in passing there.
0: Yeah. And I just feel I should say in the interest of full disclosure is that nobody should think that this passionate tirade on my part in any way reflects my success in doing what I commend, that I do indeed daily battle with discontent, envy, and contempt. So um, I'm right there in, <laughs> uh, right in there with you folks. Um, I, I am not above it all. I am right in the thick of it.
1: Well, just to finish up on Luther's interpretation of Ecclesiastes, one of the ma- major things he argues is that vanity of vanities refers subjectively to the human relationship and interpretation of the good but temporal gifts of God, the creator. What is vain is human envy and human greed that is not content with these gifts. It's the inconstant and faithless heart of human creatures who separate the gifts from the giver, and thus complain when they are disappointed. That's the vanity of vanities for Luther, though of course he doesn't deny the, the objective vanity or that is fleetingness of all things temporal. You mentioned the passage on Pat's passage in Ecclesiastes seven. Luther has a very interesting take on this. Of course, it for him is a great difficulty because it feeds right into the kind of uh, uh, um, ascetic readings of the text that, uh, that we are simply to renounce the world and flee from it, and that women are a great problem for men, that woman is man's misfortune or something like that. He, Luther says that Ecclesiastes here is speaking about the female sex as it is outside the state of grace in the state of nature. In the book's characteristic locution, Under the Sun, And then he comments, Nature does not make prescriptions for the works and miracles of God. Thus, in the light of grace, as a creature of God. Interestingly enough there, he's thinking that in the state of nature, we don't recognize the woman as a creature of God. We can only recognize the woman as a creature of God in the light of grace. Maybe that also applies to ourselves, our contempt for all things human that you were speaking about. Do we recognize ourselves as Creatures of God, made in the image and likeness of God, therefore loved and valuable. Can we do that simply in the state of light of nature, or does that require the light of grace? Now, Luther immediately backtracks on his defense of woman and denies that the woman rules the man and says that rather the woman is subject to the man. But here, the question to Luther would be whether this subordination reflects the order of creation or the post lapsarian distortion of it. And we might point out also that in the light of nature, one might also think of the male as the female's misfortune, as in our <laughs> contemporary discussions of toxic masculinity.
0: Yes, certainly. In both cases, it, it, actually, the the thing about subordination is funny because it's kind of a non sequitur here. It's it's sort of like Luther suddenly got panicked, like, "Whoa, where are these thoughts leading me? Better back off." But I mean, the, <laughs> right. the idea that, like that, that that women, yeah, again, I, as I always point out. Uh, Saxony never had any tradition even of queens. I mean, England at least could have a a woman inherit the throne, but Saxony had no public female figures whatsoever. So, I mean, uh, uh, this is not on the socio-political horizon for Luther at all. But subordination is really not, or, you know, who who has dominance over the other is not really the topic here. But I I think, you know, it's a fair observation that in the light of nature only, yes, men tend to not regard women as fully human and um, as a misfortune. And I think lots of women tend to regard men as um, m- maybe uh, more human than they are and uh, but therefore even a greater misfortune to women.
1: Tell me why not singing stand by your man after all, he's just a man <laughs>
0: <laughs> A backhanded compliment if ever there was one.
1: right right Well, that kind of let's kind of wrap up our final thoughts on Ecclesiastes. Sarah, you go first.
0: Um, well I think you know it's really short it's only 12 chapters so um, if those of you listening have avoided it like I did for a long time oh I mentioned that I, I preached on it uh, a couple years ago and I was like yeah that's probably the only sermon on Ecclesiastes I'll ever preach in my whole life because what else is there to get out of this book and now i've I've certainly come around but it it's actually it's beautifully written um it is it is poetic um uh, suggests it has a polyphonic structure so what looks a bit like like a uh, confusing back and forth actually if you can like tease out the structure it, w- it would be interesting if you could do it like with colors or with actually musical motets or refrains it might give you a better sense of how it works um but it's just it's good for its own sake and the other big thing to take to reading it is to recognize again as interpreters have for a long time it is not endorsing every position it puts forward it's like the 95 theses this way it's putting things out there in order to explore them and in many pa places to blow them up and put something else in its place. Um, but I think above all, if it's something that can help, um, reaffirm the goodness of limitation to reconnect the gift to the giver and to inculcate patience, but not, um, apathy, uh, Ecclesiastes with, because of its very, um, limited and severe and non immortality oriented view of things can help live now a little bit better.
1: Yeah, that's great, Sarah. I I agree with all the affirmations you just made. And I would just accentuate the comments I made about the critique, Luther's critique of envy and greed. Uh, as the vanity of vanities, which 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 ruins life on the earth and turns the whole creation into a system of frustration and disappointment. Allah, Romans nine, uh, Romans eight, rather. And that the uh, the wisdom of of Koholeth is that one is to uh, accept one's temporal life and its temporal accoutrements in gratitude and in fear of God. Um, and and it, it's not so much a matter of giving up greater aspirations as rather than knowing that any true aspirations must also come from above as gift, gifts of God. And that's where we can begin to talk about um, the resurrection as the as the mature hope of Israel uh, for uh, the fulfillment of creaturely life in the eternity of God. Uh, that it's, that's how it seems to me that a Christian could read this book very profitably. That as Origen com- uh, commented, it is a book that delivers us of false earthly attachments, uh, idolatrous attachments to earthly things, which we uh, think from which, like the rich man fooled in Jesus' parable, who's going to build himself a bigger barn, and that very night his soul is required of him, and who will get his barn? These such attachments are are vanity of vanity. And in in receiving the good gift things of life, and we hope in our temporal existence a, a degree of health, wealth, and prosperity um, not to be despised, but always with the uh, the deep acknowledgment of gratitude for what we are given, and the knowledge that every day of life is a gift, um, and uh, which is to be returned to the Lord in the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Uh, that's how to live a health a healthy, happy life in a world that is beset with the violence and despair caused by insatiable envy and greed running out of control.
0: All right. Well, envy and greed running out of control. That's how we're ending this episode. (laughs) Next time on the show, we will be taking up the topic of the inhumanity of a lockdown. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlekeywilson.com and paulhenlekey.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.